Uh, our Bible reading today will come from First Samuel chapter 21, and we will also read chapter 22, but we'll read portions of it. And we'll start on page 293 in the Church Bible books. Page 293 will begin in Samuel, First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 21. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what have you to hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread to hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual, whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that has been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon, because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took those words to heart and was very much afraid of Kish, the king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, Look at the man! He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come to my, into my house? Chapter 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. 
All those who were in distress or in debt or disconnected gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you, let your, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. Now we move on to verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with this son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and all the men of his family who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me, as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the, son, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant, or any of his family, of, of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this affair. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Now on to verse 20. But the son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to, to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who kills, the man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. There ends our reading. Please keep your Bibles open. Thanks, George. Very, very much. Brilliantly read. And uh, we've got Debbie, 
who is going to take our children away to a cave. Well, uh, would the children like to join Debbie? Because the cave is just behind the screen, and she'll tell you more when you get there. Now, while they're making their way, can I explain to everyone else that what we normally do on a Sunday is we study the Bible. I'm hoping you'll find it interesting. And where you find it confusing, there's a chance to ask questions afterwards. So, if you'd like to say anything afterwards, then I'm not the only one speaking here. You can say something as well, uh, and we can talk together. That's the good thing that friends can do, and we'll be doing it as well. We're always aware that when we have a meeting like this, um, we're not the only ones here to study the Bible. Our website gets visited by other people. We've now uh, got a friend in Kenya called Anne, who uh, joins us on Sunday uh, by listening to tapes. So, if you're listening in tonight, Anne, big uh, greetings to you. You're probably warmer than we are, and possibly in more ways, possibly in more ways than one. Now, we're going to be studying that part of the Bible, but let me come at it by asking uh, a simple question to start with. And the simple question is this one that you see on the screen. Does suffering put people off God? Mm. Interesting. Everyone actually says that's what suffering does. You've seen the picture just this week of a little boy being picked up off the beach. And people come and ask you, don't they, when we visit them on the doorstep, if there's a God, why do children suffer? The way they think is, if there is a God, then suffering shouldn't be around. God and suffering don't go together. If there is suffering, then obviously there can't be a God. Well, lots of people ask those questions, but it's a faraway thing about refugees and things like that. But actually, is it even more uh, a question when the suffering gets close, when it actually hits you personally? and life becomes hard for you, what will that do? Will that make you push God away and say, nope, I don't believe? Well, it's interesting to see what happens to a person who really did suffer. This person called David in chapter 21, alone. He's had more things go wrong with him than most of us have in a lifetime. And it's interesting to see the effect it had on him. I'm going to tell you the effect it had on him by telling you three surprising things. First, God's favorite, God's favorite suffers. Okay, here's around that. Second, God's favorite saves. Third, God's enemy is successful. Okay, now that's a turn off of the books. Let's go for a, a, a quick start. God's favorite suffers. Now, if we were doing the kind of previously on 24, except previously on 1 Samuel kind of recap, we'd want to say David is the one who is God's favorite. He's the one, it says again and again, God was with him. We've only got time to show you one place where it says that. But it's a close place. So just flip back one page to chapter 18 and verse 14. And you see it there. 
In everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. All right, you twisted my arm. I'll show you somewhere else as well. Just look at chapter 18, verse 28. It actually says the same thing in a different way. When Saul realized the Lord was with David. Well, and his daughter liked him as well. So David is someone who God liked and others did too. Okay, he is God's favorite. So what's it, what's it like if you happen to be God's favorite and you can say God is with you? What will life be like for you? Well, look at chapter 21, and it's like having no food. It's not what you expect, isn't it? But that's what David has to do when he gets to this priest called Ahimelech. He's got to ask him for something to eat, because he's been part of a royal court. He's worked for the king, who was called Saul, and therefore Saul fed him. Now he's on the run from that king. Then he goes hungry. So he's got no food. He's also got no weapon. In other words, he is defenseless. And as enough people wanted to kill David at this time to make this a proper crisis. He's an unarmed soldier on a battlefield. That is risky. What else? He's got no friends. Well, he tells Ahimelech that he's on a mission with his men, but the truth is, he's traveling on his own. He's only going through this, I've got men and we're on a secret, urgent king's mission business. He's only going through that story to protect Ahimelech, because if he told Ahimelech the truth, then Ahimelech will get into trouble for aiding and abetting a fugitive. So... He gives Ahimelech the kind of impression that David is serving the king so that in the next chapter, in chapter 22, verse 15, Ahimelech is able to tell Saul, hey, look, I knew nothing about this whole affair. Uh, because David had kind of helped him to think of it like that. But really, he's on his own. And then lastly, there's no escape from his enemies. And you actually get two lots of enemies for the price of one in this chapter. First you get Doeg in verse 7. He only gets one verse, but it's enough to tell you that he's on the other <coughs> side. He's on Saul's side. And it tells you he's watching. Now it does tell you he's only a shepherd, but let me tell you, come the next chapter, this guy is going to be a bigger killer than Hitler's SS. Okay? That's one big enemy in verse 7. But then he goes from there and he ends up uh, with uh, in a place called Gath. Now, that shows you he's desperate because Gath is enemy territory. It's where the Philistines live. Well, actually, it's where the Philistines live from whom Goliath came. Goliath came from Gath, and David is the one who killed him, and he's carrying Goliath's sword. So here's the place which would hate him more than anyone else. Now, when it says he went to Achish and Gath, it doesn't mean that actually, you know, he actually went and knocked on his door. It could be that he was just hoping to be an, an, another anonymous 
Hebrew refugee living in the country, but obviously he spotted it. looks like he was arrested and taken to Gath because uh, in verse 13, it actually says, uh, <clears throat> chapter 21, verse 13, it actually says that he was in their hands. You normally read that uh, description of someone who's a prisoner. And they know who they've caught because they know they've got a big fish here. In fact, you can see in verse 11, they are calling David the king of the land. Let me tell you, no one's called him that so far. But they understand what a threat he is. They've heard what people have been singing about David. They've heard about his reputation. And they've drawn the same conclusion that King Saul did, that David is going to be their number one threat. And therefore David, in verse 13, has to scratch doors a lot. He's got to dribble a lot to convince them that actually he wouldn't hurt a fly. So that the king has to say, really, this man is no threat to me whatsoever. And frankly, I've got enough loonies in my court to look after without you adding one extra. And so therefore, David is allowed to go. Now, you see the point. He's got no food. He's got no weapons. He's got no friends. And he's kind of got no escape uh, from where he's going. Hello, Barbara. Uh, good to see you. Uh, there's a place over there. Thank you very much, Anne. Right, okay. Um, normal service will be resumed uh, and we'll carry on. Okay, so you could say that David's got no food, no weapons, no friends, no escape, but you cannot say that David has no God. Because what you find out again and again is that God is there all the time. So yes, he's got no food, but then he gets food. God provides for him. Interestingly, it's called the bread of the presence. That's what they used to put on the altar in the temple every single day. Not to feed God. But remember the time God fed his people when they were escaping the threat of Egypt from being slaves there. And God provided for his people and they had the bread on the table to remember that. Now, it's that same bread that God is providing for David as he escapes. And God is looking after him. He's got... One friend, Ahimelech, who understands that there could be something the matter. After all, he comes to David with great trembling in verse 1. So he kind of understands that there might be trouble. And let's face it, if you're Ahimelech and you see a professional soldier coming on king's business and he's got no weapons, you might just kind of get your calculator out and think this does not add up but he's still willing to take the risk and help David anyhow. There is a friend. 
And then as far as the weapon is concerned, but God provided him that as well, because God is the one who provided the victory over Goliath, and with Goliath comes the sword. And that sword has somehow made its way to the museum in Nob, and David is happy to take it with him. And then no escape, well, he does get that as well, doesn't he? But the interesting thing is that David is not put off God by his suffering because he can see that God is still looking after him. And so very interestingly, he comes closer to God because of all the pressure and the problems he's got. So the last one-third of 1 Samuel, which is what we're in now, the last one-third is where things are going wrong again and again and again. And you see that next couple of weeks. But out of that last third of 1 Samuel comes seven psalms. There are words that David wrote to show how trusting he was in God and how wonderfully God was looking after him. In fact, two of those psalms come as a result of the end of chapter 21. So Psalm 56, the one we sang at the front of this service, that actually is where David is saying, hey, I'm in the middle of these Philistines. Lord, look after me. The enemy is everywhere. He's trusting God then. And then Psalm 34, which I'll tell you now, we're going to be singing at the end of the service, is actually when David gets away from the Philistines and is so happy and he'll show us how happy he was when we sing it. So, after these times, David's writing about how brilliant God is, even though everything in his world is falling apart. And that is how David uh, uh, wonderfully uh, makes his trust in God known. In- interestingly, uh, just like the last third of David's life, sort of 1 Samuel story is full of people getting at him, so interesting that the last third, or the last third of, every, of all the Gospels, the last third of all the Gospels in the life of Jesus is how people are trying to get at him and put him away. And David is the Old Testament Jesus, if you like, the Old Testament anointed king that helps us to understand what it would be like for Jesus as well. But the point I want to come back to is this. If life is really hard for you, can I invite you to ask yourself, have you eaten today? Just one meal. Have you got at least one friend? Have you got some protection? In that case, don't think that God has vanished off the scene in your life, however hard it is. Instead, get closer to him, not further away. God's favorite suffers 
But it is true that God's favourite sings. The next thing to make a point of is that God's favourite saves. So the mark of God's favour, if you look at David, is not that he doesn't suffer, but that actually he is saving others while he is suffering. Now, it's understandable, isn't it, that uh, uh, he ends up in a cave. That's a good place to hide, uh, especially in an area where there's lots of caves. Um, But to the cave come his family. That's not surprising. His mum and dad and his brothers come because they're not safe if he's been hunted. So they turn up to him. And he then finds a safe house for them in a place called Moab uh, in verse 4. Why does he go there? Well, I guess it helps if you've got a bit of Moab blood in you. And David has because his great-grandmom is called Ruth and she's from Moab. So they're parked over there. God had already kind of fixed that connection uh, so the family is safe. Then you also have those who are in distress, in debt, and discontent. Actually, I like George's little uh, reading of that, which is uh, disconnected, uh, which is a fair point. Uh, And, well, there's 400 of them, so I bet that cave's getting a bit full at this point. And you might think, well... That's a responsibility David could well do without. Hey, it's hard enough keeping yourself invisible. That becomes a bit harder when you've got 400 other people uh, making a bit of a crowd around you as well. It looks like they are just a bunch of losers, but probably actually they're, they're kind of political casualties as well, same as David, because if they've fallen out of the political system and Saul is after them, well, it's quite handy to go to somebody who uh, you can look up to, uh, a great leader like David. And it is interesting, actually, how John, uh, when you get to think about Jesus, how John said that people would run away from a bad shepherd and run towards a good shepherd. Uh, John 10 calls Jesus uh, the good shepherd in that way. And that actually, if you think about it, is quite a lot like what happens today. Because people head for Jesus as their shepherd, if I can put it like that, when the world has very little to offer them. And when they're hurt. So you can see that actually suffering brings people to Jesus. I know people say, chucks you away from him. But really, the opposite is true. And for David himself, well, having an additional problem in the sense of a larger group now to look after and protect and lead, that doesn't say, right, okay, God, now I've really had enough. That was the last straw. It's hard enough to keep myself uh, alive. Now you've thrown all these people at me. He doesn't say that. Out of the beginning of chapter 22 comes two further psalms. Psalm 57 
and Psalm 142. I didn't stick it on the screen, but make a note of it and go and read it when you get back. Psalm 57 and Psalm 142 are all uh, uh, words about how David is still looking to God, still depending on him, still close to him, under pressure. And then lastly, he cares, or saves if you like, that uh, man called Abiathar, who is the surviving priest, or uh, his uh, dad and his relatives, in fact the whole city that he lived in, uh, is now uh, uh, massacred. And it is interesting, isn't it, to read the last verse of 1 Samuel 22, uh, when David says, Stay with me, don't be afraid. The man he wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You'll be safe with me. Sure. <laughs> that sounds like I will be. He's after, he's, you're, you're going to die and I'm with you at the time he kills you. So, no, you'll be safe. And it's just interesting, isn't it? You wouldn't think that siding with Jesus in the kind of Britain that we're in at the moment where that kind of thing is really um, looked down on a little bit, well, increasingly, I think. And you might think, actually, no, choosing Jesus is not the safest option for you. Let me tell you, there is no safer place to be. And in time, you'll find that is the winning side. He can keep you safe. Even while he is suffering, he draws people to safety. So God's favorite, yeah, he suffers. God's favorite says, it's actually God's enemy who is the successful one. If you look at this story. Now here's the one called Saul. You can see him in chapter 22 and verse 6. And let me tell you, he's not hiding in a cave. He's out in the open. He's armed. He's got plenty of, well, I don't know about friends, but officials at his side. And he's got food to give away because he goes and tells David, doesn't he? Who's the one who's going to give you the fields and vineyards? Not that David over there. I'm the one who can provide everything for you. So he ticks all the boxes. He's got the food, the weapons, the friends, but he's got no God. He's got no God. When you look at him closely, you see that the only way he can keep people on his side is through bribery and through brutality. Bribery, because he says, look, I'm the one who's going to give you the fields and the vineyards. Actually, it's a bit like Satan today, isn't it? Look, I'm the one who will make sure that your life is uh, properly uh, looked after. I'll give you the happiness. Not that king, not that God's king. Uh, he won't be able to do anything for you like I can. It's the same kind of spin. But he wins people by bribery in that kind of way. But also brutality if they don't follow him so that uh, 
when he finds out that Ahimelech had been helping David, what does he do? Well, we didn't read those verses because a bit X-rated, really. Uh, but essentially, uh, he kills Ahimelech and his whole family and his whole city. He gets Doeg, his hatchet man, to do that for him. So who's going to mess with Saul after that? That's a brutality threat. Don't cross me. That's the way he can keep people under his control. But he's the one with the food, he's the one with the weapons, he's the one out in the open, he's the one with the officials and the friends. But there's no God. There are no Psalms coming out of King Saul. He's got nothing to say to God. And God's got nothing to say to him. So what does that mean for all of us? Well, let's think it through together. What happens if all this church stuff and Christianity is a bit new to you and you're just trying to get your head around it and find out a bit more? Let me ask you, when you come to a place like this tonight, when you generally look at the Christian scene in our country, what does it look like to you? Does it look a bit like a cave of misfits, of rejects, of unsuccessful outcasts? I know this cave has 400 in it. You might think 400 is a lot, but compared to the whole country that's on Saul's side, 400 is nothing. You count up number of people who go to church, it might seem a lot, but actually compared to the whole country, peanuts. What do you make of that? Who would want to join David in the days of Saul? It's the same kind of question, isn't it? Who'd want to follow Jesus in today's world? End up as a reject yourself. I'll tell you who will. It's probably those who suffer where the world has got nothing to give them. But here is one leader who will, who will take them on, who will keep them safe, who will care for them, and who, although things may go wrong, will give them a whole new purpose in life, a whole new life itself. This leader will do that. Let me tell you, if you're a Christian, you might think that, if you're not a Christian, you might think there are lots of things that you need in your life at the moment. But let me tell you, what you need most is a leader like this, to be led by someone like this. A whole new life will come, even though it spells trouble and difficulty as well. What happens if you're someone who's used to church? You've been around maybe lots of churches and here's one more. We're giving it a try. But it is interesting actually that Saul, well he would claim to be on God's side as well, like lots of churches will. And I suppose you could almost say if you're going to link or liken Saul with kind of people who also believe in God and say that they do, you might just, I say, 
compare us all with, I guess, the kind of respectable church, if you like, the established church in our country, the old denominations. They're out in the open. They seem to have respect in our society. Um, the badge, the C of E badge still works. And if you don't want to talk about uh, the older churches, I suppose you could talk about the newer churches. Well, they can be a bit like this, can't they? A bit like Saul, with the prosperity promise of fields and vineyards, if you stay on their side and do what they say. But the truth is that you can be in a church and find no spiritual life there at all. Yeah, it is possible to hang around Saul and serve your own interests, and it's possible to go to church and to serve your own interests. But you don't go home with any idea of God's bigness and greatness. There won't be psalms coming out of your mouth about the way God wonderfully looks after you, how you can depend on him on the worst day of your life. You won't be thinking that way. And you won't really know the God who is brilliant to us, even when life is rough. <coughs> now, I don't uh, confuse churches. Uh, not every church is able to uh, bring us to God any more than Saul could take his people to him either. What if you're someone who wants to follow Jesus? But at the same time, there's a lot of you that feels a bit insecure. It feels a bit precarious following this leader because you're not quite sure where tomorrow is going to take you. Well, friends, I'm not saying that our suffering will stop if we follow this king. But I do want to reassure you that there is a Heavenly Father who can take the tough times and use them to bring us even closer to Him than we are at present. That is how God works. So keep closer to Him and He will keep you closer to Him through suffering than if He took that suffering away. And David as you read about what he found to be true about God, you will see that uh, those words were written under the time when he was most under pressure. And it could be that suffering has that effect on you as well. And it's God's way of keeping you really close, looking to him, trusting him, and then seeing how brilliant he is in looking after you in the times that you need him most. But let's pray that God will help us to have that kind of confidence and then I'm in your hands, you can ask any question you like. Let's pray first. Our Heavenly Father, the truth is we, we all hate to suffer but we thank you for showing us tonight that it's far better to suffer as we follow our King than to be secure 
and yet far away from him. So please grow our confidence in you and use times of suffering to that end so that we may also see your glory and closeness the way that David did. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.